House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. And now, of course, let's introduce, we've got um, Brian Dunning, of course, the skeptoid, uh, sitting in with us today as well. Hey, Brian. Hello. Hello. <laughs> he says that, so, <laughs> hello. <laughs> Just another day. <laughs> uh, you know, um, so you're, you're both professionals at this. I, I mean, I'm, I am on the radio, and I can't, I, I find myself um, taking the insulting way, and that's not the right way to do it. Um, how do you get people to think about the conspiracy before they start passing it around and, and putting it as gospel? Yeah, you, you know, I, I, I think one of the most important things to keep in mind is one of the key outcomes of much of Joe's research, um, if I can speak for you, Joe, is that <laughs> there's, there's really no demographic that's free of conspiratorial thinking. It affects all of us, and if we can recognize that each of us, we probably believe something that somebody else considers a baseless conspiracy theory, much in the way that we consider what they think to be a baseless conspiracy theory. We have to recognize that we're, we're all human beings, our brains all work the same way, we're all in the same boat to one degree or another. So that gives you a great foundation to start talking about these things without it being a, a case of pointing fingers and making fun. Have you been able to change minds with your with, with your work? Yes, I have. Um, and never never in person, um, but all the time, maybe maybe a couple of times a month, and that's a lot over the 12 years that I've been doing a show. I will get an email from someone who says that uh, my show got them, Skeptoid, my podcast, got them to change their mind. about. They used to be a 9-11 truther for example. To me, that's big, because the 9-11 truthers I've spoken to, they're immovable. It is, it is religion to them. You cannot change their minds. And there are enough people whose minds are sufficiently open to alternate explanations other than their preferred belief, and you know they will eventually come around. And one, of the, one of the main points that I often make, uh, because people will often ask me, hey, my friend, my sister, whoever it is, believes this weird thing. Do you have a podcast I can play them to change their mind about that? And I say, no, don't do that. Don't directly challenge their sacred cow. Instead, introduce them to other subjects, uh, uh, critical thinking subjects. You know, talk about something like, you know, UFOs or Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster or some of these things that, that most of us can generally agree are not real but that represent the same kinds of erroneous thought processes and get them interested in that. And once they start appreciating the benefits of scientific skepticism and this sort of skeptical analysis of subjects, they'll eventually come around on their own. And my thought so, is the people, the 9-11 truthers whose minds I have changed, they came about it through that route. So what what conspiracy beliefs do you think over the time you've been doing this? Like, what's the type? Of belief that you've been able to have the most effect on? Is it the political conspiracy theories or, or are you able to change minds about the, the more pseudoscience-y things like ghosts or Atlantis or something like that? Well, I, I think the subjects where you can make the most progress are the subjects where there's the least amount of 
sort of emotional and ideological attachment. <laughs> Anything that touches on politics or religion, it's going to be a lot harder to budge people. But if you're just talking about some ancient mystery, you know, like, uh, for example, the origin of the Illuminati or something, um, that's something that's not necessarily going to tick people off from the political or religious perspectives. And they're much more open to hearing, hey, what's the true history behind this this story? So this sort of a, a lot conundrum, of urban right? It, it's a conundrum, right? Because you, you can change minds about things that people don't care about, but the things I guess they really do care about, it becomes much more difficult to, to, to get them to reconsider. Yeah, it's, it's much harder to shift somebody when they have a, a really deep emotional investment in it, let alone a psychological investment in it. Yeah, and I guess people say, oh, that's just conspiracy theorists. But everybody's like that. You're not going to put a Republican and a Democrat in a room and get them to each come out independents or, a, you know, an atheist and a Catholic in a room and have them compromise on five commandments or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, in, in fact, you know, the, the current political climate when, you know, the Republicans and the Democrats are, I think, farther apart than they typically are, um, that's actually been beneficial for me to use as an example because uh, people will often say, they'll name some group, whether it's 9-11 truthers or whatever group it is, and they'll say, these people are evil. They'll, and they'll use all sorts of these personal attacks and charge these people with malicious intent and all kinds of things. And I say, look, we all have beliefs, and half the country is Republicans and half the country is Democrats. And do you honestly believe that half the country is fundamentally evil and goes out every day twisting their mustache with malicious intent to destroy <laughs> the world? And obviously that's not true. So it's, it's, it's a good example of how people can have very different belief systems and still all be basically good people. So I want to get into some of your most interesting episodes. Um, you've been coming out with a lot of new episodes on Skeptoid lately. Um, and people want to check them out, they should go to Skeptoid.com. Um, but you, you recently came out with one about ghost hunting toolkits. So when I turn yeah. on cable TV, there's always a ghost show on, and they're always finding the ghosts. Um, so what are these tools that they're using to figure out if the ghosts are in these haunted houses or not? Yeah, you know, so this has been kind of a subject that I've touched on on and off again over the years as these ghost hunting shows have come and gone. And on the shows, they'll bring electronic gadgets into the haunted house. And they hope that that's going to mean that they're perceived as being scientific, as if electronics and blinking lights equals the scientific method. Of course, it doesn't. Um, what the, the, the problem is that, and the reason what they're doing is fundamentally unscientific, is just simply the way the scientific method works. In science, we start with an observation. And by an observation, I mean something that's repeatable, that other people can come and make the same observation, and then we start to form a theory to explain that observation, and then we'll understand the phenomenon, right? Now, in ghost hunting, we never get to step one. We have no reliable, repeatable observation of a ghost. So we're not able to take a ghost and measure it and look at its properties and study what it is and, uh, you know, is a ghost something that we can detect with an infrared thermometer, with a uh, one of these night vision cameras, it, with an electromagnetic field detector? Well, well, no. We've never had a ghost to measure to see if it 
can be detected with any of these devices. And yet they go in with these devices with no reason to use them. And then as soon as they get a blinking light, they show it to the TV camera and say, look, a ghost. Well, they haven't <laughs> just made an observation. They've created an observation. By so showing really their blinking lights on their device and saying this is a ghost, they're saying they have just created an observation. They made something up to show us. So they're doing science exactly backwards. So there's something that's making the light blink, but they have no way of knowing if it's a ghost. And that's what I talked about in this yeah. episode, what a science-based ghost hunting toolkit would consist of. And the first thing it would consist of would be something like uh, an electrician. And I talked to a number of friends of mine who, um, who are of a skeptical mindset, but who have, who are friendly with local ghost hunting groups and often accompany them on actual ghost investigations. So they've learned all about how these people work and what they're still doing. And they report back to me the number one cause of uh, ghost reports in an old house is pest, a pest infestation, rats in the walls, birds in the chimney, this kind of thing making strange noises. So the first thing you're, a science-based ghost hunting toolkit should consist of is an exterminator, <laughs> someone who's familiar with, with the signs of a pest infestation that ghost hunters might not necessarily recognize. You know. And that seems very reasonable given most of the places that these ghost hunters go and investigate are very old buildings that probably have infestations. Yeah, and often abandoned and things like that. So then you mentioned the electrician. Would the electrician say, you know, uh, you know, these people are picking up fields that are just occurring for natural reasons that have to do with the wiring or something else going on in an old building? Yeah, exactly. A lot of times you've got things like um, uh, switches that are reversed. You know, sometimes you'll have like two light switches. You flick one up, the light goes on. You flick the other one down, the light goes off. And sometimes these can be wired wrong, and you'll have all kinds of funny electrical effects in a house. Uh, there are, that's you know one of many 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 examples that an electrician or a structural engineer could explain when there's funny sounds in a house. Um, there's all kinds of things that can create drafts that might make things move. There's things like floors that aren't level that might make cabinet doors swing by themselves. There's essentially a, an almost unlimited number of possible things wrong with a building that can create strange surprising frightening behavior in a building and yet the ghost hunters toolkit the ghost hunters on tv they go in there with tools that are completely irrelevant to any of those things so here's a question for you and this is one that that some of the social scientists use to see if people engage in uh magical thinking about ghosts okay. they would say if you had the option of moving into a house um where the the, the family that had lived there some number of years ago had been grisly murdered uh, would you move into that house? That, that's a wonderful question, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I guess Bruce Press is the social scientist in the UK that's done a lot of writing like this. Would you wear a sweater that had been owned by a mass murderer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no reason why you wouldn't. But, however, most of us, our emotions take over from our intellect, and we have some unexplicable um uh, aversion to such things. Like somehow the sweater is going to take over your body, yeah. and then make you do <laughs> bad if things. Blood or... on it or not, you know? Oh, that, they, I'm sorry, that I said would Bruce the blood Bruce, would do it. Bruce Hood. Well, you know, <laughs> Bruce Hood. But you know, think about this. You know, back uh, when I was going over the Jack the Ripper case, 
and the cops were, um, you know, back then, they went in and examined the body and took it out. Then they washed down the whole scene because they didn't look for any sort of evidence that would hold on to it. And, in fact, that's how that shawl got out of Catherine Edo, one of the uh, um, hookers that w- was killed. Um, was uh, One of the cops took the shawl, and he gave it to his wife for Christmas. Uh. So yeah, not a good, not a good husband, <laughs> whether it's haunted or not. <laughs> that was apparently the the times in the 1800s. That was um, not uncommon. Yeah, we don't. There's there's been a lot of people have been talking about this new report. It was published in a journal saying, "Hey, we've got we finally identified Jack the Ripper based on DNA evidence," um, and that's the kind of thing that gets reported. It, it just explodes when it hits the, the mass media. And, of course, we hear these new explanations for old mysteries all the time, and they are almost all completely worthless, as was this one, yeah. Um, yeah. which I wrote about a little bit. But uh, you, you never hear the criticism or the reasons why, no, of course this is not an explanation for Jack the Ripper. Um, you just hear the sensationalized version in the media. <laughs> well, it, it sounds good. You know, could he be solved? <laughs> it's good clickbait, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's what it's all about. So let me let's move on from the ghosts for a minute. I want to go on to one of your other great episodes, and that is the Illuminati. Ah, so, yes. so a lot of people are concerned about the Illuminati. Maybe Kanye is Illuminati. Maybe Beyonce is. Um, so there's this popular lore about this secretive group, but they did some number of hundred years ago. There's been there's been a number of groups throughout history that have called themselves the Illuminati, and so you can't really even point at one that was the original, but okay. there is one that most people are referring to when they talk about the history of the Illuminati, and it's it's one of these secret societies that appeared in back in Bavaria in uh, I believe this was the late 18th century, and you, you got to keep in mind what a secret society meant then. Compared, like in in terms of what we would think of now, it's like a uh, if you if you join God, I don't know what's a, what's a what's a good analogy. I mean, it's like joining a church or or if you are a member of the trendy yoga club in town or something. It was just a matter that was what people did back then to be fashionable and trendy. Is they said, hey, I'm a member of this club or that club, um, and because this was you know. 250 years ago, they just these were different things than what we think of now. So the fact that there was a secret society is really fairly uninteresting because the world was full of groups that called themselves secret societies. And this was one uh, that was uh, uh, founded by a, uh, a professor, a law professor at the University of Ingolstadt in Bavaria in uh, the 1770s. And he was the only professor at the university who was not a Jesuit. He was kind of like the one radical atheist guy at the university. So the other professors all hated him. And he really objected to the power of the church. And so he wanted to form kind of his own little club, a little secret society, uh, that was all about um, resisting the influence of the of the church. Um, and he and some of his... He mostly he recruited his students because that was an easy captive audience for him to access, and uh, they mostly recruited from local Freemason lodges because they really wanted to kind of construct and design their society based on Freemasonry. 
it didn't really last that long. Uh, it um, and the people who they claimed as members weren't really that engaged with it. So it, it's it's kind of astonishing that uh, we still remember that group this many years later because there's really no record that they ever really wielded any influence that they were able to successfully persuade local government to do anything. You know, the kinds of things that we think of that the Illuminati can do today in terms of controlling world economies and stuff like this, they're completely, completely uh, different from anything that these guys actually did back in the 1700s. So, so, so do you yeah. think it's just a name that people have just sort of picked out and it sounds interesting and then they'll have other ideas like, oh, I think somebody's controlling everything, and they just slap that name on it. It's just a fashionable way to it's, sort it's of express the, a belief. Yeah, it's the best of all possible names. You know, the Illuminati, the Illuminated Ones, the people who have secret knowledge. And that's something that we still see today among popular conspiracy theorists. They still consider themselves to have the secret forbidden knowledge that that the sheeple aren't enlightened enough to, to, to recognize and to understand. So really, it's yeah, it's kind of the basic idea. So, so I it's, think kind of, it's, a, it's a diminutive name if you think about it, right? It's like Illuminati. It's much better than like, like imagine they name themselves like the, you know, the Moosehead Club or something like that. <laughs> you say Illuminati versus Illuminatissima. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um all right. Why don't we jump ahead a few hundred years? So I, I know you live out on the West Coast, um, and there's a big anti-plastic thing that's been going on for a couple of years, um, with good reason. I mean, there, there are we're always seeing these examples of um, animals washing up on shore or dying, and they've ingested a ton of, of plastics that have been inappropriately dumped into the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now they're banning straws, and now if you want a plastic bag, they make you pay for the bag. You looked into plastics recently. Um, what did you find? Yeah, the, the the people who are concerned about plastics in the ocean, there's there's a lot to talk about here. First of all, the, the thing to understand is this is a problem that is created and solvable almost exclusively inside a number of Asian countries, China being far and away the largest, followed by Indonesia, the Philippines. Companies like this that simply don't have the kind of waste management that we have in the United States. You know, living here, a trash truck comes to our house, picks up our stuff, drives it to a place, and it's properly managed. It's sorted, it goes to recycling, or it goes to a landfill. In these Asian countries, they don't have that. Trash just gets thrown out into piles, it gets washed into rivers eventually, and makes it into the ocean. So what happens is occasionally uh, a, a large animal like, like a whale, um, NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, refers to these as, um, uh, <laughs> what's, their, what's their turn, um, megafauna, uh, gosh, they've got some term for them, like a charismatic megafauna, that's what it is, charismatic megafauna. <laughs> So when we see a charismatic megafauna that, that tugs at our emotional heartstrings, we go, oh, look at the poor whale that died of plastic. What can we do about it? Well, unfortunately, we didn't create the problem, and there's nothing that we can do about it. It's a problem that has to be solved by China. Mm. And people don't want to hear that. Um, 
and, and again, this goes back to other conspiracy theories. Bashing, bashing America, sort of the self-loathing thing, is always going to be super popular. And that's, in, in, in my analysis, that's largely why people want to create these plastic bag bands and things that the science shows will not have any impact on plastic in the ocean, but it makes people feel better emotionally about what they're doing. Um, so is so is it the case now that the that the plastics that we're using, whether it's for straws or for bags, is is really having no impact as long as we dispose of them properly? Yeah, that's true. Unless you're going out and throwing all your trash on the ground, which you know few of us do, um, there's really it makes no difference. Uh, it it may make a minuscule difference in how much goes out to recycling centers and how much goes into landfills, but I mean, both of those are properly managed waste. Um, that's there, there's really nothing bad about landfills if you think about it. Land, although we wish we didn't have the trash to begin with, we do. Putting into the landfill that properly sequesters it. If it's full of plastics that contain CO2, um, that contain carbon, then sequestering it in a landfill is a heck of a lot better than you know burning it or washing it into the oceans. However, the, the conclusion of this episode, I think, was the real important point. And it's what, okay, well, what can we do? If our straw ban and our plastic ban aren't going to do anything, what can we do to help uh, ocean health? Well, there's two things that are much greater threats to our ocean than plastics. Because although plastics do sometimes kill the charismatic megafauna, Almost all the plastic in the ocean eventually just falls down to the bottom as reasonably inert sediment and just becomes part of the ocean floor. That's not really all that bad. What is much worse for the ocean is climate change and overfishing. And climate change and overfishing are two things that Americans can all do. At least write a check and donate to you know the, the organization of your choice that, that supports these initiatives. But those are much greater immediate threats to the ocean than plastic, and they are something that Americans have a much greater impact to to uh, help solve. So, so don't worry just, about plastics. Just a little bit I looked into it. I mean, it seems as though there are things that people want to do that can actually hurt. So I've seen reports where people will give up the plastic bags and instead switch to those reusable heavier bags. But it seems like what they've found is that people don't really hold on to those for that long, and they just wind up in landfills, and they actually take up a lot more space, and they take more time to degrade than just a regular plastic bag. Yeah, using something that's recyclable and properly recycling it is is better. But, I mean, you, you touch on another, another angle of this whole subject, which is the slacktivism angle. Uh, and, and your slacktivism is a term for clicking a Facebook like button or adding your name to an online petition or something like this that actually accomplishes very little, little to nothing. Um, and, you know, stopping using plastic straws is a form of slacktivism. You're not really accomplishing anything except making yourself feel better about what you've just done. And what we've found with slacktivism, and this is an, an active area of research, where sociologists are studying people and their reactions to crises like this and what they do and what impact it has. When someone engages in an act of slacktivism, they're now emotionally satisfied. They say, okay, now I've done my part. And they are far less likely 
to actually write a check and donate it to somewhere where it's going to make a difference than is someone who did not engage in slacktivism. So slacktivism actually makes the situation worse. Wow. If you want to do something, don't engage in a plastic bag ban, don't sign an online petition, sit down and write a check. Okay, good to know. Um, and and I got to tell you, I, I having had an email address, the same email address for a long time, I get more invitations to sign petitions. Yeah. Um, and and I, it feels to me like you're exactly right. It's, it, it just seems like people would do that, and then it's out of sight, out of mind. Yep, that's that's exactly what happens, and they become um, a, a, then a less useful member of the cause. Okay, so let's say I wanted to lose weight and get a lot of uh, uh, health benefits from my new diet. Should I go on the keto diet? <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, the keto diet is interesting. I, I talk about a lot of fad diets on the show, and uh, you know the thing with the thing with all fad diets is um, they, they any diet will work if it restricts the number of calories that you eat and and you stick to it. And, and that's the basic fact with the keto diet, like anything else. The thing that's interesting and different about the keto diet, and, and just in case someone doesn't know, the keto diet is basically an extreme low-carb diet, not too different from the South Beach diet or the Atkins diet or anything. It's just kind of repackaged, recycled, and renamed, and now it's the keto diet. When the, with a low-carb diet, um, your body doesn't get the sugars that it needs to run on, and so it uses an alternate energy source. Your cells begin to work on ketone bodies, which are something that are produced from your fat cells. So your body runs on fat rather than on sugars that you get from carbohydrates. So if you stop eating carbohydrates and you don't replace it with an equal number of calories from sugar, your body will start burning its fat. It'll start burning its protein first, so you got to eat a lot of protein too to make up for that. But another thing that this, that putting your body into this ketosis state does is it also changes the energy source for your brain cells. And oh. that's really interesting because now we have potential neurological effects from basically a diet because now our brain cells are also running off of ketone bodies rather than off of um, basically sucrose. So we've got a different biochemistry in the brain. Now, that's been known for a long time. Without necessarily being well understood, it's been known for a long time. And a long time ago, we realized that when you withhold carbohydrates from, from children who have childhood epilepsy, it reduces their epilepsy. Hmm. And it's actually still one of the treatments for childhood epilepsy. So... Any other benefits that this might potentially have, scientists are today asking, can it help with Alzheimer's disease? Can it help with uh, Huntington's disease? Some of these other neurological conditions, uh, like childhood epilepsy, so far the evidence is insufficient to make any positive conclusions. Uh, it may have no benefit at all, um, but it's an interesting and not implausible effect. So the keto diet is plausible, but completely unproven for any of these other neurological effects that you hope to achieve. Um, as far as being just a diet for losing weight, 
it's no more or less effective than any other method of restricting your caloric intake. So if you were going to do a variation, I'm going to do keto or South Beach or the cookie diet or anything, all it comes down <laughs> to is just eat less than you burn. Yeah, I did. I, in one of my podcast episodes, I was trying to deliberately be provocative, and I made an episode called Three Big Macs a Day. Because a Big Mac is what so many people consider to be the ultimate in poison pill. You know, you eat a Big Mac, you'll instantly keel over dead because it's so unhealthy. And, of course, there's nothing true about that. A Big Mac is a very nutritious meal. It has enough calories that if you eat three of them a day, you're still under the recommended daily uh, caloric intake for, for a normal, healthy adult. And so I made the case in this episode that a diet consisting of three Big Macs a day and water uh, is going to, you're going to lose weight, you're going to be generally quite healthy, there's a couple of vitamin pills you'd want to take to supplement with, other than that, you're going to do great. And of course that pissed people off. So what people about that just, movie, Super Size Me, that came out a few years ago where the guy went and ate McDonald's three times a day for, I don't know how long it was, a month or two, and then he said he was turning gray and getting depressed yeah. and became a McDonald's addict. I mean, is that sort of overblown? That was completely fictional. Uh, people are unwilling to accept the fact that movies are fiction in many cases, <laughs> and documentary filmmakers always have some agenda. And I don't know why people are so resistant to that fact. They want to accept it like it's like it's the word of God. So what happened when when Super Size Me came out? Everyone's you know, dietitians and doctors are all watching this, going, "Wait, what is going on with this?" And a lot of people repeated the same experiment. Um, I remember reporting specifically on one university in Europe somewhere. I forget where, where the guy had a whole bunch of his students participate in the exact same McDonald's diet. Of course, none of them had any negative effects, and almost all of them lost weight. So it was huh. just, it, it, <laughs> if, if you don't deliberately overeat way more calories than you should, which is what he did in his movie, um, you're not going to gain weight. And there's, it was completely implausible that you would suffer any kind of health effects that, that he claimed that he did. I think maybe the issue is that if you're someone who's well off, and you're used to spending 20 or 25 bucks for lunch, and then you go to McDonald's. I mean, 25 bucks gets you, you know, 300 McNuggets or something like that. And, I, and it feels like so easy to overspend and overeat because um, you don't really need to spend that. I mean, you get away with a, a full meal for six bucks at McDonald's. Yeah, um, people often forget that when you go to a fancy restaurant and sit down, how many calories do you think? You're, you might be getting 7,500 calories from some of these <laughs> fancy French dinners and desserts and all these courses and everything. That is a heck of a lot more unhealthy than the friendly Big Mac. <laughs> okay, so um, let me ask you about another diet. We'll just keep it there for a moment. So we'll go from the uh, keto diet to the McDonald's diet. Let me ask you <laughs> the ancient diet, the paleo diets. Yeah, This has been a fad where people say they want to eat just like a caveman, and they think that's good. Um, I don't know how well the cavemen lived, but do, do you think, is there anything to the paleo diet? Yeah, so the, the, the paleo diet is kind of what the keto diet uh, sort of evolved from. It's, it's quite similar. It's basically just, um, let's take this sort of idealized fantasy diet that the paleolithic hunters had access to and... Uh, 
you strip away anything that the evil modern humans have have cultivated, like grains and things like that. Um, the, the the paleo diet is another diet that works just fine so long as you reduce the total number of calories that you eat. Um, the, there, there's one basic piece of human food advice, and that's that humans are omnivores. We can live quite well on virtually any kind of diet. If you look at what the Inuit historically lived on, it was almost exclusively saturated fat. If you look at what the Maasai tribe historically subsisted on, it was almost entirely blood and milk. Two radically different diets. And then we've got, you know, tribes throughout the world who were lucky if they got a, a twig and a dirt clod to eat each day. And yet all of these populations have flourished. And the reason is because humans are extraordinarily well adapted to draw nutrition from just about anything we eat. We can make whatever our body needs from almost any food that we get. The rest goes out in our excrement. Uh, and the exception is vitamins, and that's what the definition of a vitamin is. It's the compounds that our body needs that we cannot synthesize from other foods that we have to eat directly. So that's why we eat a vitamin pill to get, you know, the vitamin B, vitamin C, all, all of these things that we have to eat um, that we can't synthesize. Everything else we, our body needs, we synthesize. So, so any any food can be part of a healthy diet. Any food can be part of an unhealthy diet. It's pretty simple. So should so I've heard debate about this too. I mean, should people be taking vitamin supplements? I mean, I hear that some people should, for other people it's just sort of a waste. Yeah. There's there's very few people in the United States who have a nutritional deficiency. Uh in fact, very few people in any industrialized country. If you eat any kind of anything like a a normal meal, you're getting more than enough of all of the vitamins and minerals and everything else that you need with very few exceptions. And there are exceptions. Uh, people like uh, women of a certain age uh, generally need um, additional um, iron supplementation. Uh, and people who have other medical conditions may need to supplement with some things. But in general, a healthy person has no need to take any kind of vitamin supplements. It's almost all just wasted and is, uh, it's, it's, you know, trying to, it's trying to fill a bucket that's already over full. It's just unnecessary, and so it just goes right through your system and out the other end, and was expensive. <laughs> okay, so let's jump from that. We're talking about big diets, so how about Bigfoot? So you've covered <laughs> this a few times on the Skeptoid podcast, so um, we're always hearing about the evidence of Bigfoot, whether it's they've got the hair sample or the footprint, um, or they found... Uh, um, you know, they go out in the woods and they have the recorders and you can hear Bigfoot in the distance calling out. Um, what can we say about this? Bigfoot is interesting. I, 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 it's a great subject for me because it's something that most of us are all in agreement on, that it's a reasonably silly idea. Uh, and there's a lot of really interesting things to talk about. And a lot of the lessons that we learn from studying how we know what we know about Bigfoot apply to so many other subjects in pop culture. So it's still relevant and useful to talk about something like Bigfoot. However, I should point out, I now live in the Pacific Northwest, and there are plenty of Bigfoot hunters here in my town <laughs> who are absolutely, passionately persuaded that it exists 100%. Uh, 
Um, but have they caught so, one? Is it, but have they caught one? Is the question, and I guess that's that, that's um, that's sort of the million dollar question, yeah. right? Yeah, I think we all know the answer to that question. Yeah. No, that we've never <laughs> caught a Bigfoot, and so again, just like ghosts, we've never caught one, so we don't know what properties it might have. We don't know anything anything about it. We wouldn't know what to look for in its scat or in its DNA or anything like that, um, and that's why that's basically why there's no evidence of of Bigfoot because no evidence of, of their existence has ever been found. So it's it, it's it's such a cool topic. Um, the, the episode that I did recently, uh, because my show is a podcast, it's an audio program, um, you get the opportunity to play weird sounds. And so I played a lot of famous Bigfoot vocalizations uh, and then went to the well of actual known animal vocalizations and found the matches for each of these. So these sounds that Bigfoot enthusiasts are often relying on as, hey, here's irrefutable proof of the existence of Bigfoot, well, you play the call of a gray fox, and oh, that's exactly the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> mm. Or the, the common loon. There's a lot of birds that make sounds that people attribute to Bigfoot. So that was a lot of fun um, doing that episode. So uh, I guess there have been some studies I read that said if you chart out across a map all of the places where people have seen Bigfoot or claim to have seen Bigfoot, that map would overlay really well with where bears live. And they say, you know, because of that, we, we could probably assume that people are, are more often than not seeing a bear and just confusing it for a Bigfoot. What would you I, say to that? I, so I hadn't seen that I, where I thought you were going because I've seen similar maps uh, where they have charted out all the locations of sightings and found that the characteristics of the Bigfoot changed as expected with the topography and, and climate. For example, the further north you go, the lighter colored they are, uh, mm. the thicker their fur, the smaller their ears, things like that that we see. Of course, that would suggest different species. Um I thought, I thought, so I thought you were going there, but all of these charts are, you gotta remember, they're made by people who sit down with an agenda that they're looking for confirming evidence to support. Mm. So, it would, you'd have to go back to what was their original complete data set from which they drew and see how well that matches up to the data that they selected to include in their chart. So one thing I hear all the time from the Bigfoot enthusiasts is, is, is this line about cryptozoology. This, you know, they're out searching for animals that you can never really find. Um, but they lean on this idea that um, biologists are always finding some new animal, supposedly. You know, like, oh, they went down to the bottom of the ocean, they found this new thing. And it's been there all along, but we, ju we just found it. And that means that there could be Bigfoot running around but we just haven't found it yet. So, so um, absence of evidence doesn't mean evidence, you know, um, isn't evidence of absence in itself. What would you yeah. say to that? So we see the same thing with, uh, oh, Watergate was a real conspiracy, therefore my conspiracy theory must be true as well. <laughs> um, you know, so when a cryptozoologist says, oh, an actual, an actual field biologist discovered a new species, Therefore, my dinosaur still hiding in Africa must be real too. It's the same kind of logic. It's it's a it's you know it, it does not follow. It's uh, it's it's a it's completely fallacious thinking to think that just because someone else discovered something, the things that you want to exist must be real. 
I'd remind these cryptozoologists that all of these new species are discovered by biologists, not by cryptozoologists. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, the one I hear most about is the uh, the, the big shark. Is it the, the, the meg is what they call it? Uh, megalodon, carcinogen. Yeah, megalodon. A megalodon is, you know, a, a, a massive uh, great white um, who's a, a dinosaur, and it's just lurking at the bottom of the ocean, just waiting to eat people. Um, yeah, I think um, I think one time I, um, I was doing uh, some research on that, and I found the the heaviest elephant ever known, which is of course much bigger than any typical elephant that you'd see at a zoo. It would take five of that elephant to match the weight of what the largest megalodons probably got to. That's that's staggering. Uh, wow. These things were the size of a semi truck. Uh, that's a heck of a shark. <laughs> but they don't exist anymore. Is the is the you know is the is what the science says now. Well, certainly there's no evidence that they exist. Um, it would. Uh, it would it would be hard for those to get away unseen. Of course, the oceans are big. Um, I, you know, what, what are the projects that we're doing at, at our nonprofit right now? Um, is we're producing a film called Science Friction, and this is a, a a documentary film where we're interviewing scientists who have had their comments taken out of context or misquoted or badly edited to make it sound like they were saying something the opposite of what they were saying. And one of the gentlemen that we interviewed was a shark scientist. And they took him down to the bayous of uh, Louisiana or, or Texas, I believe it was, and they wanted to ask him about this legendary monster shark that some people said lived in this certain lagoon. And they asked him, so what about the, I forget what they called it, you know, the kukuruku, what, the monster shark. He said, oh, that's not real, I couldn't tell you anything about that, sorry. Then they asked him a second question. They said, hey, is it possible that any large sharks would ever come to a place like this? And he said, oh, yeah, large sharks like that, we catch them here all the time. So what they did on the TV show, and this is on Discovery Channel Shark Week, is they grafted his second answer onto the first question. Oh. So it sounded like they were asking him, so what do you know about the Kukuruku monster shark? He says, oh, yeah, it comes on here all the time. <laughs> So when you hear stuff on television that suggests to you that the megalodon might still be real, chances are that's the kind of thing that happened to persuade you of that in the show. It's not scientists making these shows. These are TV producers, and they're going to make you believe whatever they want to. So that's what I question about shows like Ancient Aliens, which is on the History Channel. They always have... They have some pseudo-experts, and occasionally they'll have like a, a, a professor or something like that. But I wonder how much of it is just twisted and turned to make it sound like um, they really believe that aliens landed here and built the pyramids or something like that. Yeah, you know, that that show is largely founded upon the work of Eric Von Daniken, the author who wrote Chariots of the Gods and others who followed in his footsteps and just kind of expanded from there. And oh my gosh, um, over over the course of my career talking with archaeologists, Nothing gets them so upset as ancient aliens because it's just such BS and it so misrepresents, you know, work that they've spent entire careers building. And along come these people with crazy hair who sit down to make a TV show and just make stuff up or they quote the fringiest crackpots they can find. Anyone who has a sensationalist idea. Um, 
if someone out there listening now has watched Ancient Aliens and wonders, gee, is that real? If your mind is still open to answering that question, <laughs> I would encourage you to go to YouTube and look up Ancient Aliens Debunked. It's like an eight-hour video, <laughs> but it goes through one of the early seasons of Ancient Aliens when they were covering kind of the big basic subjects, and point by point just destroys it, shows you what the actual science shows on each of these things. It's, it was a, a wonderful project. I, I'd give the name of the guy who made it if I had it off the top of my head, which I don't, but it's a, it, it wins my support. So that's an interesting juxtaposition because right now we're living in a world where they want to um, scrub the Internet of all of this misinformation because they say it's driving all these crazy beliefs and misinformation. Um, but I think what we see oftentimes is that it's the traditional media that does this just as much, whether it's the History Channel giving fake history or Animal Planet doing shows about animals that don't exist like mermaids um, and Bigfoots. Um, you have the traditional media engaging in this sort of misinformation and then blaming it all on the Internet, whereas I think the Internet can really be a tool for, for fighting some of this stuff too. Yeah, you know, nobody's talking about um, from doing some kind of a top-down censorship. You know, when Facebook or Twitter say they're going to kick this stuff off of their own platforms, of course, they're only talking about their own platforms that they own, yeah. and they're free to do whatever they want with. Sure. We have If we go to networks like the History Channel and say, gee, wouldn't it be nice if they would make some kind of a similar pledge, uh, that they would stop doing this this nonsense factually untrue broadcasting and start doing what they say they do, which is educational programming, uh, that would be great. Well, they just, we all agree that would be great, and they haven't stepped up to, to do that yet. They've, they've made lip service to it a couple of times, but they've never followed up. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it would be nice if the channels all actually did what they said that they do. But it's, I always find it interesting, because even you go to something like The View, Right, and um, you've had on there 9-11 truthers and moon landing deniers and uh, vaccine conspiracy theorists on that sort of mainstream show um, that's been out for 20-some-odd years. And, you know, most of our discussion in the media now is, well, what about the Internet? And it's a, I think these legacy media places really need to do some introspection and say, you know, what are they doing to contribute to, to these problems as well? I sure wish they would. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're, you're preaching to the choir here. I remember that when, um, when uh, let's see, I, I think it was History Channel. Uh, no, it was Nat Geo. Uh, it was, I think it was Nat Geo. I think they said, uh, and my apologies to either network if I'm getting it wrong, they were doing an Amelia Earhart broadcast. No story has been had as many complete BS um, alternate histories promoted about it than the Amelia Earhart disappearance, unfortunately. Um, they were they, they were do doing a series on um, this one particular photograph that somebody claimed, oh, that depicts Amelia Earhart sitting on a dock after she was kidnapped by the Japanese and on her way to Japanese prison. And almost immediately as soon as that show came out, a Japanese researcher found that from a travelogue photo that had been published in a book before Amelia, or two years before her flight. So, of course, that was not what the photo was. And the network then tweeted, they say, commitment to historical accuracy is absolutely our most important priority, and we will follow up with this and correct this. 
<laughs> and of course, that was the last they ever mentioned of it. Oh my um, gosh! It, that's that's just an example. They, they give lip service, but really, their business is is eyeball shares and and advertising and um, sensationalism is kind of the cheapest, easiest, laziest way to accomplish that. Well, I, yeah. I know on Out TV they still have uh, my favorite shows, uh, Ru- RuPaul Drag Race. Sorry, I. <laughs> <laughs> but that's true. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a, a, a more fact-based show. That's absolutely true. <laughs> well, you get what they say they're going to give you, right? That's the whole idea. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Wow. I I try to do that with my show, and I know. Many of my colleagues uh, try to do that with their shows. Uh, I think it's unfortunate that the people with the biggest platforms um, have a different set of ethics. Yeah. Uh, okay, so tell, tell the listeners about your show. So if someone hasn't heard your show uh, and uh, your, your books, uh, just, just let people know who you are, how they can get a hold of you, and give you a good story. Yeah, so once again, my name is Brian Dunning. I do the best known for the podcast, Skeptoid. You'll find in the uh, top science section of iTunes. It's been in there for 12 years now. Um, you can find it at Skeptoid.com. We basically talk about the science behind urban legends. It's uh, short uh, 12 to 15 minute shows. They're easily digestible little sound bites, so subscribe and enjoy. Um, I'm also the author of Conspiracies Declassified uh, from Simon & Schuster, 2018. Uh, it's kind of a collection of 50 popular conspiracy theory stories, um, how they exist, why they exist, what the true explanation behind them is, uh, something that I think is fun and instructive for anyone who's an, interested in that. And I'm just basically a guy who loves mysteries and solving mysteries and using true history and true science to see how we can better ourselves. Follow me on Twitter at Brian Dunning. Yeah, and we will have you linked up, of course, on our website and uh, thank you and all the different uh, social platforms that we're on now. And uh, I think it's important work for me. I, I I appreciate that you're out there, and I know for sure because doing this the show with um, Joe, it always seems like we're the underdog. Uh, yeah, that yep. you know what I mean. Uh, if if yeah. we were Very turned much. around, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, if we were turned around, and do this whole same episode. But if we were telling people that it was true that they're spraying us with chem spray and 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 giving the that kind of a segment, uh, you you'd have twice the listeners. <laughs> Sensationalism sells. <laughs> yeah. That's the challenge that we're all up against. Yeah, yeah. it's it's just so um, so. I appreciate that you take the time and you do what you do. And uh, we're, we're also very glad that you've stopped by to uh, give us some of your time. Happy to do it. It's always a lot of fun. Uh, it's great talking to you guys, so anytime. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. 